When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. A lot going on in this episode. Rolling Stone's new cover story features Megan Thee Stallion, and it's a news-breaking and sometimes heartbreaking look at one of my favorite rappers out there right now. To talk about that, we have that story's writer, Rolling Stone's Manka Percante, who will be joining me in a minute. And afterwards, we're going to talk about this strange and welcome phenomenon where Kate Bush and her song Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God, has made it into the top 10 of the current pop charts, despite the fact that she recorded it in 1985, thanks to the show Stranger Things. And we will have Rob Sheffield on board for that one. But here's Monkapur Conte to talk about Megan Thee Stallion. Hey, Monkapur, and first of all, congrats on the story. There's a lot to talk about, but I want to start with Megan's next album, which you got a super exclusive look at. And there's at least one song you heard that you didn't get a chance to talk about in the story. So I thought you could touch on that now. The song, I believe, was called Flip Flop. Let's do a little Rolling Stone Music Now exclusive here and tell me a little bit about that song. She recorded a lot of stuff. There's no guarantee that anything that I heard will actually be on the album. But she definitely is really in love with the five songs that she played for me, Flip Flop being one of them. And so one of the things that stood out to me most about that song is it has that kind of like Southern bass line. It feels like riding in like a cool ass car, you know, going slow. It just felt really cool. And so she's kind of singing, rapping in the chorus she's singing and she's contending with fame and struggle in the song. She has a really nice breathy singing voice on it. Like her singing voice is super pleasant to me. And I think that we heard it on Big Old Freak, but this feels different. Big old freak, huh? Big booty, big old tree. I'ma make him wait for the puss. Wait, wait, hit it in big old ski. Hey, feet on the bed. Um, and so one of the lines that stood out to me in Flip Flop, which is a tentative name, I don't know if that's what it's actually going to be. When she was describing the song, it sounded like it hadn't been given a final title. She said, if your mom and daddy are still walking this earth, then you probably ain't feeling my pain because, you know, both of her parents have passed. I thought that all throughout the songs that I heard, she contends with these very traumatic things that we know happened to her in the most upfront way that she's done on wax. And, you know, she tried with sugar. That was the whole press cycle of sugar. It's like, sugar is my alter ego that takes care of me, that allows me to be vulnerable. But when I talked to her about that era, I said, do you feel like you were being as vulnerable as you could have been on sugar? And she was like, absolutely not. Which was pretty clear to me. I wrote the Pitchfork review of that EP. That was one of my observations about it at the time. Money to make and we all gon' spend it. Taking care of my teammate with me. Can't complain, can't do no tripping. Saying a prayer and I know he... But it's Flip Flop is produced by a Jew who we know, Lil Jew made the beat, is her very close producer. You know, she has the tag on a lot of her songs. And if the beat live, you know Lil June made it. She says she expressed some of the things that she expressed to me in conversation. There's another line where she says, I don't know why they want me to fail. I don't know why they hate me so much. And Megan is just really ready to confront the way that she is treated like a spectacle and not a person. And I think this song is really emblematic of that. 
I think your favorite of the songs you heard is called Gift and Curse. We, Megan played that song for me in March, and then we had a conversation about it in May. Then when I asked her, you know, can you think about a lyric or a concept on your songs that is really important to you? And so she gave me a new perspective on that song because she was like, yeah, you know, the song is lit. Like it goes off. It's definitely like somewhat of a party record. But she's saying that because I know my worth, I'm a gift to other people. Like I'm strong. You don't have to take care of me. I can take care of myself. She benefits from those characteristics as well. But it's a curse to both the people that she deals with, primarily men, and to herself. So if you have a woman, she explains, that doesn't need you for anything, you might get the boot real quick, you know, and there's the curse. But for her, it's that people think that she doesn't need anything. And because people think that she doesn't need anything, she does not get the tenderness, the support, the care that would probably help her thrive. And then there's a song called Pressurelicious, great title. And that's a collaboration with Future, who I'm a big fan of, profiled a few years back. Yeah, I love Future too. And it's fun because it's almost reminiscent of WAP in that not that Future is perpetuating like this strong feminist sexual rhetoric. Jump down inside of me, quick. jump out for you, let it get inside of me. I tell them where to put it, never tell them where I'm about to be. I run down on them before I have a nigga running me. Talk your shit, fight your But like that, they're going back and forth. It's not just like future sent in a verse, they plopped it in the song and then Megan, you know, has most of it. There, there are literally bars being traded and it sounds really, really good. And how many songs has she recorded so far for this album? In March, when we met, she had recorded 25 to 30. But every time we talked subsequently, so our first in-person meeting was in March. We met again in April. We Zoomed in May. Each time, I said, how's the album going? She says, oh, you know, I recorded two or three more songs. <laughs> and then I talked to Ferris one day, who T. Ferris, who is a legendary social house up A&R and manager from Houston. And he, the day I talked to him, he said, oh yeah, I'm with Megan in LA, we're recording. So at this point, I don't know, but there are at least 25 songs recorded. I heard Pressurelicious, which we discussed, Flip Flop, tentative title, Plan B, which was before Coachella. So I got to hear Plan B before the rest of the world did and my jaw dropped. And then I got to hear Gift and Curse and another song called Anxiety. The Plan B video is so stark and incredible. It is, it is. And there's been this debate on Twitter because, you know, that, that video is a partnership with the fashion brand Moncler. Megan is now has like a deep relationship with that brand. And, and people were saying, oh, Megan is making Mugler look like Fashion Nova. And we know Fashion Nova is a fast fashion online brand. Some people do not respect Megan. She can do the highest level of art. She can work with the most incredible designers and be told that she is making their work trashy. And I think that that is emblematic of the conversations that we had. There's just some people that do not believe that she is worthy of being revered or taken care of. And I thought you did an amazing job of getting her to open up about that, and we'll get to that more in a bit. Let's talk about Anxiety. So Anxiety is a song with a pretty on the nose title. And for the record, you said in the story that the beat to that song is kind of simple and saccharine. So Megan, it's not too late to improve that beat, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that the message of the song is really important. And one of the things that I told Megan is, which she pushed back on, is that I think that there, as much as there are some people that do not respect you, there are people like me and my friends, or people like your fans, probably young women, that 
think you are like the baddest bitch in the whole world, you know? And so on that song, she says, bad bitches have bad days too. And she is talking about her mental health. And I think that that is so important. So like, even if I don't necessarily love the way the song sounds, which there is time to change, Megan, but I think that lyrically it's really important. And she has this really touching moment in the song where she says, if I could write a letter to heaven, I would tell my mom that I've been wilding and but I've been trying to do better. And I think there's this guilt that she feels and um, this debt that she has to her mother who very much, even though she has passed on, very much lives in Megan's thoughts in like the best way, I would say. Maybe a difficult way, but in a very positive way. And she's just talking about all the things that make it hard for her. And even before she played the song, her voice got small and she was like, hey, Source, can you play Anxiety? And so I can tell that it matters to her. I almost didn't want to say, you know, like, I don't love the way this song sounds. But I think it was important because that is a thing that comes up with Megan. Her rapping is incredible, but sometimes when she experiments, especially with softer things like Don't Rock Me to Sleep on Good News. Just come get all your stuff. I guess my love ain't good enough. You act so hard with me, but I just saw you in a... It's not always well received. People want Tina Snow, but... Megan is trying to show that she is layered and that she is vulnerable. And so I think that that makes the song important no matter how it sounds. And again, you had no idea that Plan B, which is out now, was going to come out as a single or that she was going to debut it at Coachella. So I didn't watch Coachella live. I was busy that night. So I asked my boyfriend to record the live stream for me. And I hear this song that I remember hearing two inches from Megan's face with my jaw dropping. There are so many lines about being with men that take advantage of you when you are strong and profitable <laughs> and being like, you know what, fuck that. That really, really struck me. And the sample is like, to me, it was like kind of obscure. It's a Jodeci and uh, Raekwon sample, but it gives it that hard hitting, you know, people have compared it to a performance by Queen Latifah or Lil' Kim, and who are like people that Megan really looks up to and people who are like canon in hip hop. I loved it. Megan told me after Coachella that she was worried about doing the song because a lot of her, her set is danceable and plan B is not. Plan B is like you sit down and you listen and you get in your bag. But she was like, I'm going to do it because I love to rap. Megan Thee Stallion loves rapping. And that is a rapping ass song. And I'm so glad that it's out in the world and that I didn't have to keep it a secret. Deal fuck niggas still can't believe I used to fuck with you. Popping plan B's because I ain't playing to be stuck with you. Damn, I see you still kick it with them. And you talked to Megan about what happened in July 2020 when she endured a shooting Allegedly at the hands of the artist Tori Lanes, who was a former friend of hers. And the treatment of that incident has been really baffling and upsetting. People have treated it way too lightly, spread misinformation about it, sometimes seem to blame her. And she really opened up to you about what it was like to be attacked like that and how she recovered. Yeah, I was shocked when she, it made sense in hindsight, but there was a moment where she was like, I could not walk. I was being carted from one place to another. She was asked to come go to New York by the head of Rock Nation, who she's very close to, named Desiree Perez. So she goes to New York and then she goes to Tampa to finish recovering. And in part of that time, she is not able to walk. And she's not sure if she's ever going to be able to walk or dance 
or, you know, rap on stage. And she says, I didn't think I was going to be able to be Megan Thee Stallion anymore. That's just heartbreaking. And, but what's incredible is, so after the shooting, good news comes out in November, 2020, I believe. I wrote the Pitchfork review of that too. I was just like the resident, like Megan expert at Pitchfork. I wrote about or researched that she did a performance within months of the shooting and completely completely tore it down. Like before SNL, like just like some other performance, I think it was a, a virtual performance. Like people got to watch it at home because we're like peak pandemic. And to think that she wasn't, she thought she wasn't gonna be able to do it. So she did the hell out of it is really impressive. But you know, like the psychological and the physical toll of being shot, I can't even imagine, you know? The way that people treated this incident, again, seems to have gotten to her. Probably a lot, you know? She doesn't really start conversations with people she is not very comfortable with anymore because she will start crying or she'll feel like she's going to start crying. She cried in front of me. And you can see her trying not to. Not because she's ashamed or embarrassed or anything, but it's just like, you can't walk around weeping all the time. Like, what kind of life is that? You had this amazing and intense quote from her, which is, you know, really exactly what you want a profile like this to do is to give you a sense of really what it's like to be that person. Maybe you can read us the quote I'm talking about. Megan says, I see people saying, damn, I would have shot that bitch too. In some kind of way, I became the villain, Megan says, bewildered. And I don't know if people don't take it seriously because I seem strong. I wonder if it's because of the way I look. Is it because I'm not light enough? Is it that I'm not white enough? Am I not the shape, the height? Is because I'm not petite, do I not seem like I'm worthy of being treated like a woman? For just a moment, her voice cracks. That was one of the things that I desperately wanted to be in the piece. She just put it in a little box and was like, here, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. And it's and and I think that she gets to the 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 pure nonsense of it. Cause like, look at the things that she's listing. They all seem like very real possibilities. It may be because she's not white enough. It may be because she's not small. It may be because she's strong. And all those things are crazy, <laughs> you know? Like that's no reason for someone to be told that they should have been shot after actually being shot, you know? By, by strangers, it's nuts. Not to spoil the end of the story because everyone should read the story first, but at the end of the story, she says that she's been through all this and she's gotten back up and she hopes that serves as a message to other people that they can go through really awful things and get back up. But what do you really make of that message? I think I had the thought that it is inspiring, but I worry. Maybe because it puts too much impetus on the individual to try to overcome these unfair circumstances. And yeah. Rather than like breaking down systems. It's like you have to, it's like Megan has had to rely on her resilience. And rather than, I mean, you have to be resilient because like we're not gonna destroy the patriarchy in a day, right? So resilience is necessary. But I would also emphasize that we have to be having very real conversations about why this matters beyond the celebrity of it all. So I was actually, I met a couple this weekend and we ended up having a conversation about Megan the Stallion and I was like, I can't say anything about the cover story. But, um, because it hadn't come out yet. But the boyfriend and the couple was just like, well, it's not fair that Tori doesn't get to talk about Megan anymore and doesn't get to talk about the case anymore, but Megan gets to go on Gail King and- Wow. 
Yeah, and I've heard that's a very common argument. That's not an uncommon argument. Oh, he was like, everybody is, everybody's participating in this conversation now. Like he said, because Megan is talking about it and Tori is talking about it, we're all talking about it. And I was like, we're all talking about it because gender-based violence, particularly against women and non-masculine people is extremely prevalent. And this is a microcosm of that. They just happen to be extremely famous. Um, you know, no matter no matter what uh, the different accounts are of that night, Megan was definitely shot. Someone definitely released an album claiming essentially that they were in a relationship with her that was soured and that she maybe wasn't shot and that maybe someone else did the shooting and that all this other stuff. And it's like, why can't we just hold that this woman was assaulted and care for her and all want to just get to the bottom of it in a fair and just way. I guess maybe all of our perceptions of fairness and justice are different, but I just think that the, not even just the shooting, like the aftermath of the shooting, like the rhetoric, the way academics is tweeting at her in ways that he has never, ever pressed against men who have come in his neck. Vic Mensa sat up in his face and was like, I hate you, essentially. And he was like, hmm, tell me more about that. So you can't take gender out of it. You know, you can't take race out of it. You can't take violence out of it. And so I think that like saying, you know, I'm getting through it so you can get through it is, isn't important because we have to get through things, but we also have to come to a place where we all understand why those things are happening and doing what we can in our power to make them not happen. She also had a really positive vision of her future. I asked Megan, you know, where she thought she'd be at 70 years old. And she said, oh, I'm going to be a lit ass grandma. <laughs> and she was saying she's going to have, it's funny that she only imagined herself with like women in her family, but she was like, I'm going to have a lineage of daughters of daughters of daughters in this family. We're all going to have strong knees. We're all going to be lit. We're going to be beautiful. We're going to be black. It's going to be great. And that was so lovely to hear because that means that, you know, she plans on surviving. <laughs> That's awesome. Overall, where would you place Megan in the world of rap right now? I think that Megan is the most culturally relevant and impactful women in rap right now. Cardi B is incredible and they're contemporaries, they're peers, they make music together. But Cardi is laying a bit low. She's not making a ton of music right now. And of course when she does, it's, uh, or at least that we know of, like when she does, like the, the Bronx Drill song that she did, it's great and it's important. But I think that Megan culturally, like musically impeccable, right? doesn't really work with songwriters like that. She she talks about that in the piece. We know that for a fact. Like if Megan is rapping, she like nine times, more than nine times out of 10, she wrote those words. And then culturally, you know, Hot Girl Summer, like there's still, we are three years removed from the creation of the term Hot Girl Summer. And there are still debates on Twitter about where it belongs and who gets to say it. And you know, like, there's not a woman in rap that is more culturally relevant than Megan Thee Stallion. And for her to be that person and to still be traumatized in the way that she has, like what, what hope is there for the rest of us? <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to be dark, but- No, it's definitely a fair point. You know, like it's like she has everything. She has fame, she has wealth. But, but one of the beautiful things that I see, and I mentioned this in the piece, is that in my world, I have to go look for the hatred. To, it doesn't just come across my timeline because our timelines are curated to give us the content that we want to see. And I mostly see women defending Megan, loving on Megan, telling her she's great, telling these men that are 
questioning whether she was even really shot to shut the fuck up. And I think that we should not lose sight of the fact that that world exists in spite of all the awful things that have happened to her. Part of Megan missing her mom is that her mom was, of course, a rapper and taught her a ton about hip hop and how to rap. I'm glad to hear that Megan, you know, she even though she's very, um, she keeps close her music. She really only shares it with a couple people as far as like looking for feedback. I'm glad that she has that voice in her head that can guide her because it's led her to all the right places. And by the way, like you said, three years after Hot Girl Summer, all over TikTok, I'm seeing people talk about going on Hot Girl Walks. The Hot Girl Walk is huge right now. And that would not exist without Hot Girl Summer. It's all Megan again. Like to anywhere? Like if I'm walking to the bathroom, is it like a hot girl walk? Quite honestly, I'm seeing it more in the context of here I am outside taking a walk to Starbucks. I love it, but you know what? That's beautiful, you know? To feel like you're hot walking to the grocery store, that's a beautiful thing. And again, that's all courtesy, ultimately, of Megan Thee Stallion. Thanks again, Mockerper. Handle me? Who gon' handle me? Thinking he's a player, he's a member on the team. He put in all that work, he wanna be the MVP. I told him ain't no taming me. I love If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So, a wonderful song called Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush is, I believe, in the top five in the Hot 100 singles chart. Again, this song came out in 1985. And the reason for this chart appearance is because, as you probably know, it plays a very prominent part in the new season of Stranger Things. about this phenomenon I have with me, Rob Sheffield. And so, Rob, I know you haven't been watching Stranger Things, at least this season. You bailed on Stranger Things, but that's okay. That's okay. We understand. We don't, we don't, have, to, we don't have to roast Stranger Things. I'm just, let's just say I'm behind. I will say that this season surprised me. It, it seemed a little meandering. And then the big twist at the end really was a twist for me. I was surprised, and I'm looking forward to the finale. So props to Stranger Things. I think they're still pulling it off. But 
and I will warn anyone listening, we're about to spoil not the very end of Stranger Things, but a bit of this season of Stranger Things. Rob has kindly agreed to be spoiled. A great sacrifice on Rob's part, but he's doing it for you. you. And, and I want to stress, I love Stranger Things. I'm just behind. He's behind and I'm spoiling behind him. So, so, Sadie Sink, who in our world of music is best known for portraying a fictionalized Taylor Swift in short film for All Oscar Too Well. for that. Sadie Sink, boy, nobody can make like crying curled up in like green flannel and typing on a red typewriter so evocative like Sadie Sink. Maybe Oscar Sadie performance. Sink, maybe Sadie Sink, and she is great in it. Maybe Sadie Sink will end up being the Taylor avatar for all future videos. Maddie Ziegler did all those Sia videos. Maybe that's going to be Sadie Sink for Taylor. Maybe this is an ongoing relationship. But anyway, on Stranger Things, Sadie Sink plays Max. And here's where I'm going to spoil a little bit. So stop listening. Don't tweet me and get upset. Just stop listening. So Max, her favorite song is Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. And she is basically, to long story short, her body is still in our dimension, but her sort of mind is in the upside down. And if they don't pull her mind out of the upside down, she's about to die. And the way that her friends save her is by putting on her Walkman headphones and playing her favorite song by Kate Bush. And that opens the doorway back to reality. And actually, it's not even the first use. They play that song actually throughout the season, kind of preparing you for this. And there's a great little bit, which you would love, Rob, where they're going through all her cassettes, trying to find it and trying to figure out what her favorite song is. And, but yes, a cassette of a Kate Bush song literally saves her life. It's sort of unforgettable iconic, I dare say. And it led a whole new generation to embrace this, what is, of course, a fantastic song from an absolutely genius album, Hounds of Love from 1985. But now that I've spoiled a show for you, maybe you can just talk about that song before this. Kate Bush has said that it's a song about sort of wanting to be able to make a deal with God and switch places with their lover so they could understand each other better. It has amazing sort of synth stuff on the Fairlight, which is this incredibly large and incredibly expensive synth from the 80s. But just maybe talk about that song's place in culture before all this. Well, Running Up That Hill, a great song. Like you said, very Fairlight song. I mean, in terms of the Fairlight was a synthesizer that was really dominant in 1985. So Hounds of Love is the ultimate Fairlight album, along with, you know, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, and Scritty Politty Cupid in 85. These are Fairlight albums. <laughs> I just say you are on an amazing streak of mentioning Scritty Politty every time we have you on. I, 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 please don't break we it. We talk about this like it's an accident. Yes, I okay. talk about Scritty Politty in literally every conversation. <laughs> but... I love Hounds of Love. It was a huge breakthrough for Kate Bush, definitely in the U.S., where she hadn't had anything even close to a hit. This was definitely not a mainstream top 40 pop hit in 1985, but it, it was on MTV and it was on the new wave rock stations. So it was her first big American song. And it was also a controversial song in the Kate Bush fandom because for a lot of the Kate Bush fans in my life who are mostly punk rock women, they were really into the album before this, which is called The Dreaming, which is the best Kate Bush album. It's so hardcore. It's so abrasive. 
it's so just mind blowing. It's it's an album that has been continually shocking me and and freaking me out for all these decades. I've been listening to it. And compared to the Dreaming, the Hounds of Love album, which was a couple of years later, was a lot more poppy and a lot more melodic. And you know, some of my friends called "Running Up That Hill" her you know, disco sellout hit, but an undeniably fantastic, majestic, magnificent song. If you went back in time and told anybody in 1985 that this would someday be a, a top 10 hit in 2022, I mean, in 1985, the songs that are hits on the radio are Falco and, you know, One Night in Bangkok. Zion's going to be the witness to the ultimate test of cerebral fitness. This grips me more than would a muddy old river or reclining Buddha. Na, 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 19 by Paul Hardcastle. There's a lot of fluky one-shot top 10 hits in 1985. A very strange and wonderful radio year. But Running Up That Hill was not part of Top 40 Radio at the time, so really astounding how, how beloved it is now. I guess technically speaking, just because someone's going to correct us, technically it peaked at number 30 in the Hot 100. But back then it was nothing like in the uk where it actually was a number three hit so there was a legit hit we're talking about hits in 1985 the phenomenon of an airplay hit like it doesn't mean that it was actually being played on the radio how charts were devised in those times is a very interesting sort of read up on your 20th century true crime narratives no need to get into that here but it, it was not a song you heard on pop radio i can i can tell you that Right. But a fantastic, compared to any other Kate Bush song, compared to England, where she was a big mainstream star, in America, she was best known at that time for writing the Pat Benatar song, Weathering Heights. Out on the whining, windy moors, we'd roll and fall in green. You had a temper. You know, which it seems funny now to think that that song was much more famous for the first 20 years of its existence to Americans. It was much more famous as Pat Benatar song that was a cover of a Kate Bush song. The irony, of course, is that Kate Bush just failed to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And as more than one person has pointed out, this would have been, this is exactly the kind of thing that voters might have responded to. It actually might have gotten her in. So we'll see next year. Again, nobody fails to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's always wait till next year. And she's been on the ballot before and, you know, not made it. I will never not vote for her. I will never not vote for Kate Bush. And she is someone who... In, in terms of a, an artist who had a cult in the 80s, but who just keeps making new fans, makes converts, it's just kind of astounding. She's kind of like Joni Mitchell or Stevie Nicks, these female geniuses who are certainly acclaimed at their time, but but they keep reaching new fans, new audiences, every generation. And it's amazing to see with Kate Bush. Maybe just break down how people saw, how people see Kate Bush as a figure. I mean, you know, to me, one of the only things you need to say is she, she's one of Bjork's favorite artists. Taylor Swift is a big fan as well. The key word to keep in mind when you're talking about Kate Bush in the 80s or at any time is weird. There's no way to overstate how weird she sounded to listeners in the 80s. There was nothing in the history of pop music that sounded anything like her. Her voice was so high and so eccentric, and she would do so many different voices. In her songs, she would do so many different accents. You know, a hardcore great Kate Bush song like Breathing or Houdini. They just sounded 
incredibly weird to American ears, especially American pop or rock ears. And it, it's funny that even at that point, the R&B audience was so much more into Kate Bush than either the rock audience or the pop audience. And it was the R&B audience that kept her alive during years when she was not as famous, you know, like when Maxwell did this woman's work as an R&B slow jam or, you know, Prince dedicated an album to her. It, it was really amazing to see that she was someone who was just outside any category of pop music and she just always found her people. Kate Bush is an artist who has always found her people because she sounds like nothing else and fits into nothing else. Big Boy from Outkast is absolutely obsessed with Kate Bush, and he, he actually apparently recorded a song with her, uh, he, he revealed last year. So that that's an ongoing thing. When Johnny Rotten became Johnny Lydon, and he formed his new band, Public Image Limited, and he started making a lot of announcements, press conferences, manifestos for his new band. And this was 79, 78, 1980. And what he always said was, rock and roll is dead. Rock is over. Rock is rubbish. There's absolutely nothing happening except Kate Bush. And <laughs> at the time, this really freaked people out because Kate Bush seemed really different from what you'd think he'd be into. He would also say the raincoats. But it's a thing where, you know, the fact that he thought Kate Bush was the only thing worth listening to in modern music, very telling. She's always found her people, even though she never fits into categories. Side note, apparently Sadie Sink was asked which Taylor Swift song would have saved her from Vecna, who was the monster pulling her <laughs> into the underworld, and she, which is a very good question. And she said August. So there you go. I love that. Although, <laughs> although I'll note that Cruel Summer is arguably Taylor's most Kate Bush sounding song. People dream high in the quiet of the night. You know that I caught it. Bad, bad boy, shiny toy with a price. In that song totally sounds like it should have been on side two of Hands of Love. Well, you know, perhaps in the Venn diagram, St. Vincent, since St. Vincent worked on that song, maybe the Venn diagram between St. Vincent and Taylor Swift met up in Kate Bush would be my guess. Absolutely. But yes, but Taylor is a Kate fan going back and given, you know, Taylor's songwriting, it would be weird if she didn't. Certainly the kind of songs that Taylor started to write with Folklore and Evermore those are very much like the songs that Kate Bush was writing on The Dreaming, uh, where she's each song is a different character. She's doing these really weird sort of narratives that fit together in really strange ways, but are also very independent. And very the characters are very different from song to song. I, I honestly, I'm always, I would always recommend listening to The Dreaming. It's going to be weird. It's a weird album. And it's hard to overstate how weird Kate Bush sounded to people in the 80s. Um, when Hounds of Love, which is now an esteemed classic, came out, uh, Rolling Stone happened to review that album, and and the level of weirded outness and freaked outness and sheer incomprehension was kind of beautiful to see. Just letting it all. It's good. It's a good thing that review's not on the internet. Forget it. <laughs> I, I must be thinking of some other magazine. But um, it, it's also it's worth noting she got no favorable press coverage in the American press at all. And in the English press coverage, she was written about as kooky eccentric. The, the British press was treating her as kooky eccentric, not somebody to be taken seriously, but, you know, much like they treated Stevie Nicks at the time. You know, like, look what the loony said this time. And it took really until the 90s for her to get a lot of sort of establishment respect. 
It's interesting that Kate Bush, who is pretty quiet, released a statement saying how apparently she is personally a Stranger Things fan. And she released a statement how excited she was about all this and even that she was looking forward to the conclusion of the story. So this clearly has meant something to her. But if it makes Kate Bush make a public statement, that's a big deal because part of her mystique, even in the 80s, was she was a recluse who had nothing to do with the everyday world of pop celebrities. Very similar to the Chardet mystique, another like female genius who was huge in, in 1985. But she she's someone who did not play any pop star games and nobody had any idea what her life was like outside of her records. She was just totally like a recluse in, in this really awesome sort of awesome way. And I wanted to note that Matt and Ross Duffer, the creators of Stranger Things, did not select this song. They, according to various reports, they basically left song TBD. Nora Felder, <laughs> who's been the Stranger Things music supervisor since the beginning, selected the song. And she said that she was, she told Vanity Fair that she was a fan since it was on. She was in New York and heard it on WLAR. So The New Wave a, Station. And this is a good example of maybe sometimes just letting the music if you're not a music person just let the music supervisor they're going to pick the cool song but it fits the story so perfectly and the scene so perfectly that it's hard to imagine that they didn't decide until later what the song was kind of like say anything one of the the best pop music scenes in any movie when john cusack is holding up the boom box in front of ioni sky's house and when they filmed that scene they had no idea what the song was going to be they did not decide in advance. So when John Cusack was holding up that boombox, it was playing a song by Fishbone. And it, it's so funny because it's so perfect and we can't imagine it any other way with any other song. But, you know, Stranger Things and Kate Bush is like that too. You just can't imagine. It's just, it's so perfect for that moment. Can you think of just a couple examples of songs this old that were brought this much to public attention years afterwards by a movie or TV? The Bohemian Rhapsody thing in Wayne's World was certainly a, a huge example of that. Bismillah, no, we will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah, we will not let you go. Let him go. That's probably the best example. An, an example from the 80s just to compare it to when Kate Bush came out and was new, was a, a huge song, a top 10 hit in the 80s, was Stand By Me by Ben E. King, which was already one of the most famous and beloved songs in the rock and roll canon. It was a, a old old song that Ben E. King sang in the early 60s, one of the most beautiful and beloved soul ballads, but it was featured in a movie in the 80s, a movie that has, movie, obviously, not spoiling the suspense, the movie's called Stand By Me, and that's why the song became a hit. And it, another great example from the 80s is a song that, quite polarizing, but it was really weird when this song became a hit because of the movie Good Morning Vietnam with Robin uh. Williams as a DJ. But Louis Armstrong, more than 10 years after his death, he died in 1970, I apologize, but certainly more than 25 years after his previous hit, which was the weirdly number one hit, Hello Dolly, but... Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World, was a top 10 hit in the 1988 for no reason other than it was in a movie and people heard it and people liked it. The Beatles cover of Twist and Shout also went back in the charts, I now recall, because of Ferris Bueller. So I guess, it, weirdly, it was an 80s thing. Uh, this did happen in the 80s. I can't think, besides, of, besides Bohemian Rhapsody, I can't think of much in the 90s. 
none of the songs from Pulp Fiction became top 10 hits. However, there are about two dozen songs in pop, Pulp Fiction that were obscure before that movie came out that have been world-famous classics ever since. There was a time when Stuck in the Middle with You was a totally forgotten 70s oldie. That's from Reservoir Dogs, of course, but Quentin Tarantino made that song a song that everybody knows now, which is really weird because it was really obscure at the time, and that was kind of the point. But Pulp Fiction has you know, all those surf songs like Dick Dale's Miserloo. Those are complete obscurities before Pulp Fiction. That that was part of his genius as a filmmaker. So, Same with Martin then, Scorsese. You know, like he's always had these amazing deep cuts that he picks for his movies. I mean, this is going to sound crazy to the younger folks, but there was a time when Harry Nilsson's "Jump Into the Fire" was a virtually unknown song. It was a deep cut by an artist who had been completely forgotten by history. Then after Goodfellas, that song will never not be a classic. And then finally, as you were kind of hinting, Kate Bush has been reappreciated many times since she was underappreciated in the 80s, but it does feel like it's a time that could really appreciate her as a genius who happens to be a woman, maybe more than she ever was before. I hope a new generation can connect with her beyond this song, and I'm sure that's already happening. Absolutely. And, and part of the original Kate Bush cult. Like I said, a lot of 80s punk rock women, like who I was friends with at the time, there there just weren't other artists like Kate Bush that they could, you know, look up to as a female artist who is breaking every single rule and having success only on her own eccentric terms. And that's something about her that has kept her music resonating. One of my favorite Kate Bush revivals, and there have been so many Kate Bush revivals over the years, this is probably the biggest one, but uh, in 1992, there was this great techno rave hit by the Utah Saints called Something Good, which just sampled one line from Cloudbursting. Ooh, I just know that something good is gonna happen. Over a techno beat, just that one line over and over again. And it was a huge international smash. It was like one of the big techno crossover hits of the early 90s. And it's so amazing to listen to it now. And it's like they just took one line from a Kate Bush song, sampled it all the way through it, and they made it an international disco hit, a classic. I have to say, before we finish this topic, we've talked about some of our standbys comparisons like Taylor Swift and Scritti Politti. I'm wondering a few thoughts about the connection between Kate Bush and Rush. Wow. I mean, I've never heard the guys from Rush talk about her. I, I mean, I think that, I think certainly they both share a, a love of Prague. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that she could have fielded the vocal that Amy Mann does on Time Stand Still. <laughs> that that would have been, that would have been preferable. Probably. I'm not looking back, but I won't. I mean, probably even uh, she would have killed that. I know, actually, interestingly, I do know that Getty Lee loves Bjork. I've never heard wow. him mention Kate Bush, but perhaps 
the same. It, it would not shock me. I mean, it wouldn't shock me at all because you know they had a great interest in synth stuff. Well, I mean, they loved Ultravox and stuff like that. It's not too late. If Getty, if you're out there listening to Kate Bush, I think you dig it. From your description, it sounds yeah. like it, it's hard to imagine you wouldn't be into her. But in terms of artists who were huge in the 80s, a very musically conformist period of the 80s, the mid-80s, when a lot of stuff was sounding the same, and Rush and Kate Bush were both so popular despite having their eccentric sounds that you would never mistake for anyone else, and very eccentric lead voices, and very specific poetic artistic visions that were not watered down for the mainstream at all, yet they had huge success. It was a new world woman. (laughs) And on that note, that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Monka Percante and Rob Sheffield. We'll be back next week. Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. We're also on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. But download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts because I'm always grateful. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.